We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Maricela Dei Mater Alma Atque Semper Virgo Felix Hello again. I don't want you to think that uh, asceticism is all I've written or talked about, but my contact with Steve at Census Fidelium was over the uh, book on liturgical asceticism, and so I've been looking through my old notes for uh, other treatments I've made of it. I uh, have to find ways to uh, explain this to my undergraduates, and so um, I'm uh, taking some of those old class presentations and uh, using them for you. And the one that I want to use today concerns C.S. Lewis. He's always a hook that uh, grabs people's uh, interest or attention. And uh, I found material in him that uh, explains the ascesis, and so that's what I'm uh, presenting here. The uh, link brings one to a page on, in uh, Touchstone Archives, and uh, here's the article form but I'm going to uh, deliver it and uh, add some uh, comments as I uh, go along. I've described myself uh, as trying to rehabilitate this word. It uh, has suffered a fate by uh, making us think of somebody who's strict, stern, austere in an excessive and almost pointless way that the person is unable to appreciate the delights of creation. And that's not what I think ascesis means. It did once have a positive meaning in the Christian tradition, and I'm trying to uh, contribute to it. If I were to connect C.S. Lewis to the idea, uh, I should say that the merest of Christians, his book Mere Christianity, the merest of Christians must be ascetic. As I've tried to say it, it may be perfected in the sands of the monastic desert, but asceticism is born in the waters of the baptismal font. And a uh, Christian without asceticism is like a pancake without flour. Just put the uh, milk and the eggs in, uh, and you don't have a pancake anymore. Lewis rarely wrote about asceticism explicitly, but he did make observations of human nature and the uh, theology he understood from both the Church Fathers and the Middle Ages were expressed in themes and insights that I'll categorize as ascetical. Um, I'll take the responsibility for this if, as I need to. So I'd contribute to the uh, restoration of the term by uncovering certain themes in his uh, material. What I'm really doing is uh, these three things. A definition, the role of time, and then some of images, Lewis's images of uh, transfigured creation. I've got more than uh, just these three uh, units in here, but that's what I'm doing. Uh, definition and the uh, uh, application of time, and then some images for it. The word derives from eschesis, which means to practice or exercise, particularly used of athletes. Its root is askein, which means to work, there is a labor involved in asceticism. It's a spiritual labor. It's the work of uh, expanding one's capacity for a spiritual contact with God. It's the uh, work of emptying out what is um, not only opposed, but also uh, fails to make room for God. So, they labor to attain a goal. And what's the goal? Deification. Theosis. God became man so that man might be made divine. 
We share in the divine nature, according to Second Peter 1. That means to be taken up into the Trinitarian relationship of love. Here's my um, picture of the three doctrines on which Christianity stands. Here's the Trinity. You can tell it's a Trinity because it's got three sides, triangular. And there's a movement of love that moves between the persons of the Trinity. That's called perichoresis in Greek, circumincessio in Latin. And as that love movement went between the three persons of the Trinity, one day it overflowed itself and the cosmos was created. Overflowed, like when you were a kid, you sl uh, slid around in a slippery bathtub until the water fell over and your mom found it leaking and came up and told you to cut that out. Well, down this ladder from the Trinity comes agape, love. And up this ladder from the Trinity comes thanksgiving. Well, let's use the Greek word eucharistia, because then you'll know what I'm really thinking of. That's the doctrine of creation. Here is the doctrine of sin. There's a break. There's an interruption. Um, there's a gap that is created by Satan. Uh, I used to draw it this way, like there was a gap, and a clever student in class said, you know, uh, I don't think that Satan can ever stop the agape of God from reaching down to us. I said, you're right. Uh, from hereafter, I'll start drawing it just over on the right side. What Satan tries to do is to take the creation of worship to himself. He's the morning star. He's Lucifer. He should be uh, giving material worship to the Father, but he doesn't. He takes it to, to himself. And so then here's the last stage. Uh, what the first Adam failed to do, the second Adam must restore. And so uh, he uh, inserts a uh, uh, cardial stint. A, he opens up the uh, blocked artery again so that uh, the Eucharistic, Eucharistic flow can resume. Uh, that's it. Creation, fall, and redemption. Um, you can pass the course and uh, take your A and go home. Our being conformed to such love as this is called asceticism. The conformity is effected both by God's grace and our response. Asceticism is not just like our half of the work and then God does his half of the work. Asceticism is God's grace conforming us in our participation in that process, which itself is caused by grace. And what might this mean? I've used this uh, a couple of times already in the uh, Lewis story, The Horse and His Boy. They meet Aslan for the first time at the end of the story, although Aslan has appeared many times throughout the story. And when the good and humble mare Huynh meets Aslan for the first time, she trots up to him and says, You're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. I think that's the um, birth of asceticism. Can the world feed my desires? It can pretend to. It can do it just in little bits and pieces, it can change your desires so that it can satisfy you, but no, the world cannot feed you. If you gave yourself up to Christ to be one with him, to enter into him, to become his slave, if you'd be eaten by him, that's uh, the ascetical exercise. Eating is a nice metaphor that we use when we want to describe love of a particular sort of intensity. There's a uh, scholar named Philippe Rouillard who uh, said uh, food and religion have uh, been associated with, with each other in uh, four different ways. One is um, the God eats the man. Other is uh, the man eats the God. Third is that the uh, man 
eats in memorial of the God or something that the God has done. And the fourth is that the man and the God eat together. When he first, uh, well, when I first read him uh, giving that, uh, I had three of those four uh, nailed down in no time at all. I had already begun my uh, studies in liturgical matters, and I understood Eucharist as the man and the God eating together. They break bread together. Together, cum, panis, bread, root of the word companion. We have companionship with Christ at the Eucharistic altar, just as his disciples had companionship with him at the Last Supper. Yeah, I understood that uh, we eat in memorial, in remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. Oh yeah, is there anything remembrance in the uh, Eucharist that can make us think of number three here? Sure, uh, do this in memory of me. Anything in the Eucharist, uh, right? The sacrament, which gives some sense of a person eating the God? Yeah, what's the last thing you hear before uh, receiving it? Taking uh, the body of Christ given for you. This one was one that was missing in my mind until I became a parent. And it was Saturday. And we'd been uh, raking and jumping in leaves all afternoon. And then the little kids uh, came in and had their bath. Uh, sometimes you can hardly get them in the bathtub. Uh, this time I couldn't get them out. Their fingers had all gone pruny already. And we put them in their feet pajamas that had been freshly washed. They didn't smell of pee anymore. Read uh, Goodnight Moon for the 642nd time. Tucked them in with that uh, blanket with a binding on the edge of it that you snuggle up around their neck. And the parent says, oh, I love you so much I could just eat you up. What a strange thing to say to a child just before he goes to sleep. What kind of nightmares does this uh, cause? Does he dream of uh, mom and dad coming down the hall with a knife and fork in their hand? Why do you say, I love you so much I could just eat you up? With my undergrads, I uh, say, you have to uh, think about this because one day these words are going to fall out of your mouth. And uh, in college, you're supposed to think, prepare yourself for life. So uh, prepare for why you said this. In the, this video audience, you may have found of yourself saying it already. Why do you say it? I think you're right when you think that there's uh, an effort to get close, to make contact, and you want to get so close that you could actually like go one inside the other. That's why in the world of mysticism, there are two metaphors, mystical images for uh, encounter with God, food and sex, because both of those transgress the boundary of a human being called the skin. I love you so much I could just eat you up. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. And ever since uh, that made sense to me in Rulliard, I imagine not only Christ placing himself on the altar to give us himself to eat, but ourselves placing ourselves on the altar for him to give to the Father. Well, the metaphor means that all the boundaries are overcome, and I'm proposing that whatever prepares us to be loved by God with this intensity is called asceticism. Because it is an act of love, it doesn't stem from any sort of disgust with this world. That's the first and greatest error people have about asceticism. It is a not a kind of dualism, matter and spirit. It's not Manichaeism, the body is bad. It's not Gnostic, material, escape the body, you know? None of that, none of that. However, because nature, especially human nature, has fallen, it must be corrected. But its essence is good. And correction is quite different from repudiation. Asceticism comes from the willingness to surrender our appetites. Uh, I'm still playing around with that food imagery. Surrender our appetites that we could be taken up into mystical communion with the Trinity. There we go.
we must choose between two alternatives. Augustine declared in the City of God, either love of self till God is forgotten, or love of God till self is forgotten. Those are your choices. And asceticism is making that choice at that crisis point. Augustine writes, Imagine a man in whom the tumult of the flesh goes silent. His soul turns quiet, self-reflecting no longer, it transcends itself. And now imagine God speaking, speaking himself, not through the medium of things, but speaking himself, so that we could hear his word, not in the language of the flesh, not through the speech of an angel, not by the rattling cloud or mysterious parable, but of himself. What if we heard him whom we love in everything speaking to us? This ascesis is the basis for hearing God in creation, which is a step to hearing God himself speak, Theologia, material from Evagrius. The desire for the silence in which we hear God is the genesis of asceticism. And asceticism is silencing the tumult of the flesh. It quiets the noise of worldliness so that we can hear God's voice. You know that the early church had Christians pray numerous times a day, not just monks, but all Christians were expected to pray uh, many times a day. And one of them was at the midnight hour. And it's explained, you get up at midnight when everything else is hushed and you could hear the uh, voices of praise going on in heaven. It's like the uh, cars have stopped, the planes aren't flying, the buses aren't honking their horns anymore. And in that uh, quietness, you could hear God's voice. Ascesis and quietness are uh, connected or related. Uh, let's get back to appetites again. Why are we not naturally conformed to God's love? Because our appetites have been misdirected which lead us to believe that there's a contradiction between God's glory and our happiness, and that's wrong. This is the error that has to be overcome. Stronger word than error. The heresy that must be overcome in order to understand asceticism. We think that we can't submit our lives to God and still have what we really want. If I give God to the glory, then I lose my happiness. That's going to have to be fixed, that crazy idea. This is uh, Alexander Schmemann again. The original sin is not primarily that man has disobeyed God. The sin is that he ceased to be hungry for God and God alone. The only real fall of man is his non-Eucharistic life in a non-Eucharistic world. The up arrow of, of Eucharistia has been uh, blocked out, and that's the problem. Well, our joy and God's glory, how do they relate? I think Lewis gives us a uh, picture of it in the silver chair. A young girl named Jill Pohl meets Aslan, but she's as afraid of being eaten by Aslan as Huynh was anxious, eager to be eaten. Aslan stands between Jill and a stream. This is from a um, BBC video, and it's hard to see, but there's a stream of water right back here. He stands between uh, when she's desperately thirsty, and she tries to exact a promise from the great lion who has invited her to drink. And what's the promise she wants? Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? I don't know where this stands in the uh, uh, hierarchy of bargains we try to work out with God. It's either at the very beginning or else it's the very last one and it's had, that has to be overcome. Dear Jesus, I love you. I know you love me. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I become your disciple? We hope that we can receive God on our own terms and he won't do anything too radical to us. And what does Aslan reply to her? I make no promise. Jill is afraid she'll lose her autonomy. 
autonomy was the very thing that Huynh was ready to lose. Losing autonomy is something Lewis says he understood very well. He said, uh, what I couldn't stand is someone interfering with my life. And Christianity told me that I have to give myself over to God as the great interferer, who's just um, sticking his fingers into uh, my existence. So he remarked in the problem of pain that the joys of heaven are for most of us in our present condition an acquired taste. Uh, still appetites, hunger, feeding, taste. In his essay, A Slip of the Tongue, he admitted that his endlessly recurrent temptation was to go down to that sea and there neither dive nor swim nor float, but only dabble and splash. You go down to the uh, sea of transcendence, to the ocean of eternity, to the presence of God, but be careful not to get out of your depth. Hold on to the lifeline that connects me with my things temporal. This was a uh, picture in the New Yorker magazine, and I clipped it out as a picture of a secondary academic theologian studying God. You see, he has his shoes and socks off, and he's up to his ankles in mysticism. Mrs. Murphy is in this picture too, but you can't see her because uh, she's out here over her head, <laughs> dived into the water. We must risk what Aslan will do to us. Humility is thus the animating power of asceticism. Do you have trouble with asceticism? Uh, lay on the spiritual psychologist's couch. We can tell you why. It's because you lack this humility. Asceticism undoes the act by which Adam ceased to be fully himself. Adam wished to belong only to himself. He refused to go beyond himself. Failure of asceticism is a uh, picture of what's wrong in the Garden of Eden. It's a very lovely book on asceticism by Paul Evdokimov, Orthodox theologian. It uh, made many little light bulbs go off. Sometimes, uh, as Wittgenstein said, the light dawns on the whole, but more often uh, ideas are like little fireflies, and they uh, spark and then they die out. When I wish I could remember what that was, but um, you get little kind of sense of it. Well, he uh, let loose a bunch of fireflies for me. Not only have our appetites been misdirected, they've also been enchanted. And the ascetical task consists of breaking the enchantment. When the white witch wants to seduce Edmund into betraying his siblings, she gives him a piece of enchanted Turkish delight. And only later does he learn two facts about the enchanted delight. First, anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it and would, even if they were allowed, go on eating it till they had killed themselves. That, says the fathers, is why Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. It's not because God is uh, petulant and threw a hissy fit and said, all right, get out of here. All the fathers say they, God would have given them to eat of the uh, tree of eternal life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil in due time. But because they took it early, if they stayed in the garden and ate of the second tree, they would be frozen in their rebellion. So they're cast out in order to have time to repent. Second, nothing spoils the taste of good ordinary food half so much as the memory of bad magic food. Uh, I think that's uh, simply the doctrine of original sin put in Lewis's um, picture language. We are all of us born with a spoiled appetite. It's not that Adam did something wrong and we're getting spanked for it. It's that Adam did something wrong and it spoiled the appetites that we have received. And that memory of bad magic food spoils the taste of this good ordinary food. We can't do the world right because we've got this uh, spoiled memory of a spoiled appetite. Because our appetites are corrupted and we're not hungry for that which is good or good for it, then we never get filled. 
and we desire what will not fill us, and we would go on eating it if we could until we killed ourselves. Step 14 of the Ladder of Divine Ascent, John Klamaka says, Control your appetites before they control you. So, the restoration of our sensibilities must begin with the dissolution of our enchantment. And we see this in the silver chair. Lewis deals with it. The Lady of the Green Kirtle nearly succeeds in entrancing her victims. She begins singing a, uh, uh, a sleep-inducing song, and she puts some green powder into the fire. And the fumes of the, uh, that come out of the fire as a result of that powder uh, bewitch them, confuse them, start putting them to sleep. They can't think clearly. Well, the whole scheme is foiled by the Marshwiggle Puddleglum when he bravely stamps out the fire with his bare foot, Lewis telling us that it filled the air with a very unenchanting smell of burnt Marshwiggle. The pain itself made Puddleglum's head for a moment perfectly clear, and he knew what he really thought. There's nothing like a good shock of pain for dissolving certain kinds of magic. I suppose that's what gives asceticism its negative reputation. The pain of fasting, the pain of restraining from uh, some good, the pain of giving alms and not being able to buy the new TV at Costco that I had in mind. But there's nothing like a good shock of pain for dissolving certain kinds of magic. And even if the ascetic overcome, overcoming of our enchantment shocks us, Solovyov said we should clearly understood that the purpose is not to weaken the flesh, but to strengthen the spirit in order to transfigure the flesh. Spirit and body will work together. A corrupted spirit can mess up the body. A unruly body can mess up the spirit. But you could repair the spirit by disciplining the body. And so begins Hiskesis. We've been given time for this strengthening and transfiguration. This is exactly why we have time. The coming of Christ has been delayed in order to allow time for this completion. And its completion is the very purpose of creation. Lewis was firm in saying that ascetical practices are a means and not an end. In themselves, they strengthen the will, and they are only useful insofar as they enable the will to put its own house in order, the house of the passions in order, and prepare it for offering the whole man to God. Prepare it for oblation. Why, I think we're talking about liturgical asceticism. The duty exists for the delight. When we carry out our religious duties, we're like people digging channels in a waterless land in order that when at last the water comes, it may find them ready. I mean, for the most part. There are happy moments even now when a trickle creeps along the dry beds, and it often happens to souls, and happy souls to whom this happens often. Souls to whom this happens often are happy. The water is grace. We don't force grace to come to us. We don't produce the grace. But we dig channels so that when the water comes, it will find us ready. The abbot in a monastery once told me that religion is building a road for God to come to you by. That God travels on that road is completely gratuitous. It's agape, undeserved love. But we must prepare for his coming. And I'm trying to present asceticism as a preparation. God has given us time and space that we could acquire our taste for eternity and become what God intends us to be. So now is the time of repentance. At the end of uh, all my years of teaching, I have uh, half a dozen sentences that I'm proud of having written, and uh, this is one of them. Man is a verb until he becomes a noun. Verb, being. We are human beings. We are in the process until we become the final noun, the saint. 
Maximus, a confessor, counsels, seek the reason why God created, for this is knowledge. I've always wanted to give that as an essay exam. Fifty words or less. Give me the reason why God created. Well, uh, Demetrius Stanilo gets an A+. Plus. If God created all things in order that they might share in his love, their purpose is to reach full participation in this love. And in the tendency towards complete union with God, a tendency towards rest in God's fullness, Maximus saw the meaning of movement and hence the meaning of time. Why the Big Bang? So that we could be in union with God. Being a saint takes time. Boy, it sure takes time to become a saint. Fine, God says. Here, you'll have all that you need. All that my providence tells, knows that you will need. Indeed, marveled Ephraim the Syrian, he wearied himself to gain us. This is the good one who could have forced us to please him without any trouble to himself, but he didn't. Instead, he toiled by every means that we might act pleasingly to him of our free will, that we might depict our beauty with colors that our own free will had gathered. Equal sign, the virtues. If he had adorned us, then we would have resembled a portrait someone else had painted adorning it with his own colors. But we participate, we synergize, we cooperate. Our free will gathers these virtues. We participate in the portrait that we will become. We're uh, sketched in the image of God in a charcoal silhouette, silhouette, but we've been given a hand in selecting the colors in order to grow into our likeness to God. Uh, I owe you uh, one little uh, presentation on eraser. I owe you presentation on uh, icons and ascesis someday. So some other way to describe this, sure. Let's talk about reality. Lewis wondered in Mere Christianity, is there perhaps no other way of getting many eternal spirits except by first making natural creatures and then spiritualizing them? He says, I don't know. This is just guesswork. But it seems to be the way God has made this creation. Uh, God could make other worlds. We've been assured by the theologians of that, but it seems like in our world, God will produce many eternal spirits by starting with a natural creature and then spiritualizing them. So being spiritualized does not mean becoming less real. Quite the contrary. In the last battle, the last of the Chronicles of Narnia, when Narnia ends and every creature went through the door of judgment, Narnia was not destroyed, it was made new. The whole concept of the new creation involves a belief that whatever estrangement there was, is, between spirit and nature will one day be healed, and asceticism is the healing of that now. Spirit and nature. This is what the Platonists had a glimpse of, they just didn't have the full revelation so that they could understand it correctly, fully. Lewis's language, we await the day when nature and spirit are fully harmonized, when spirit rides nature so perfectly that the two together make a centaur rather than a mounted knight. It's not that we ride on our bodies, it's that we rule our bodies in a harmonized way. Lewis described the difference between old Narnia and the new sunlit land by recalling a childhood experience. He says, imagine a room with a window on one wall that's opening out to a sea or a green valley. Then there's a mirror on the opposite wall. After looking at the real thing through the window, you might turn and catch a glimpse of it in the mirror. I suppose he's playing here with Plato's cave, isn't he? We're not just staring at the shadows. We can see a glimpse of the 
real island. And then we get a glimpse of it in the mirror. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror are in one sense just the same as the real ones, yet at the same time they're somehow different. More wonderful, deeper, more like places in a story. In a story you have never heard but very much want to know. Well, the difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia, the island and the glimpse in the mirror was like that. The new one was a deeper country. And every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. Isn't that a strange thing to say? A good thing he's doing it in a story. You can make these sort of comments. This seems to mean more. What do you mean it means more? That's the point. It's a uh, bad handwriting. Let me try to do this better for you. The cosmos, when approached through the ascetical filter, is deeper. It's thicker. That's a strange thing to say. Hamburgers are thicker, encyclopedias volumes are thick, but now we're talking about things, reality being thicker. It has more meaning. I suppose purpose is involved here. More ability, what the thing can do, is has been increased. Well, get back on track. Jewel the Unicorn is the first to understand. He declares, I have come home at last. This is my real country. And the reason why we love the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. Narnia is destroyed. It's been uh, uh, crushed under the waves of the floods and all the creatures have been uh, taken through the um, door of judgment. And the reason that they loved the Narnia outside the door is because it looked a little bit like the Narnia on the other side of the door. We move from earth to heaven, from time to eternity, from shadow to substance. So we should say something about human shadows. That's why in The Great Divorce, Lewis described the ghostly tourists from hell as having a difficult time negotiating the landscape of heaven. They're warned by the solid people, it will hurt at first until your feet Feet are hardened. Reality is harsh to the feet of shadows. Hardening your feet so that you can walk on the grass in heaven is asceticism. This is a uh, long uh, quote and two of them from C.S. Lewis. Behind all asceticism, the thought should be, who will trust us with the true wealth if we can't be trusted with the wealth that perishes? Who will trust me with a spiritual body if I can't even control my earthly body? Our present bodies, small and perishable, are like ponies given to schoolboys. And we must learn to manage them, not that we may someday be free of horses altogether, but that someday we might ride bareback, confident, rejoicing those greater mounts, those winged, shining, and world-shaking horses, which perhaps even now expect us with impatience, pawing and snorting in the king's stables. If you go to the uh, Great Divorce, find the chapter concerning the man with the lizard. See what happens to him, See what happens to the lizard. That's a chapter on asceticism. So it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Heavy sigh. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Remember, that was his picture. Didn't want to get out of his depth, hold on to his lifeline, not go into the waters.
The demon Screwtape knows that it's a lie, a lie no doubt first told on his side, that asceticism means diluted pleasure. It's a lie to think that sin affords a more robust variety of pleasure than does virtue. So he cautions his uh, apprentice tempter, Wormwood, never to forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are on the enemy's ground. In Screwtape, everything's upside down. In is out, up is down, black is white, and the enemy is God. Our father below is Satan and the enemy is God. And when we deal with any pleasure, we're on God's ground. Yeah, 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 the demons have used pleasure as a lure to damn many souls, and yet, Screwtape writes, he made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times, or in ways, or in degrees which he has forbidden. Here's one of the great funny lines in the whole C.S. Lewis corpus. Screwtape says, He's a hedonist at heart. God is a hedonist. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses and lents and asceticism are only a facade, only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, in his sea, there's pleasure and more pleasure. He has a bourgeois mind, Wormwood. What a great description of God from a demonic point of view. He has filled his world full of pleasures and everything has to be twisted before it's of any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages. Everything has to be twisted. Money, sex, and beer has to be twisted into avarice, lust, and gluttony. Oh, we fight under cruel disadvantages. Aren't you feeling sorry for the demons now? Asceticism is the untwisting of things in our relationship to them. Asceticism is ordo amoris, the right ordering of love. So, we might say that ascesis leads us to discover the really real. One of my professors said he read his grandchildren a, a fairy tale, and at the end of it, she asked, is that real? And he said, being a, a pesky academic, I uh, asked her, age five, uh, what do you mean real? And she undid me by saying, you know, really real. Got it. What's really real? In the last battle, Prince Tyrion has been thrown through a stable door to die as the enemy soldiers await him inside, and he's surprised instead to find himself in a green meadow with a high King Peter and Queen Lucy. And he says, uh, wasn't I thrown into this stable? Uh, but this seems to be a different door. Well, put your eye uh, to the uh, plank in the door and look through it. And he, sure enough, through the door he sees the darkness and lantern waste where uh, he had fought his last battle and where he had been killed. But here he is standing in the open sunlight with his new friends. It seems then, said Tyrion, that the stable scene from within and the stable scene from without are two different places. Yes, said the High King Peter, its inside is bigger than its outside. And just in case you haven't been paying attention, Queen Lucy pipes up to say, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. It came upon a midnight clear, O little town of Bethlehem, away in the manger. The God who holds all creation, in which is found the earth, in which lies Bethlehem, where there's a stable, that God lies in the manger. So a little while later, Lucy realizes the garden they're in now is like the stable. It's far bigger inside than it was outside. And this is asceticism's discovery that as you go further in, it gets bigger and not smaller. Of course, replied Mr. Tumnus, 
she met him in uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and he shows up in The Last Battle. The further up and further in you go, the bigger everything gets. Its inside is bigger than its outside. Then she realizes that this transfigured creation is still Narnia, more real, more beautiful than the Narnia below, just like it was more real and more beautiful than the Narnia outside the stable door. World inside world inside world. There is a constant increase. Greeks had a word for this. Epictosis. I-O-U. Lewis used the same spatial image in The Great Divorce. George MacDonald tells a bewildered traveler that he thought he had approached heaven by traveling over an infinite abyss. Uh, you can find a picture of anything you want on the internet, and uh, there's C.S. Lewis fans, and they put this, uh, there's, here's the flying bus leaving the gray town to come to the um, solid land. They thought that they were traveling over this infinite abyss with towering cliffs, but in fact he had come up through a tiny crack in the ground. You were smaller than an atom. So the voyage was not mere locomotion. That bus and everyone inside it was increasing in size. Asceticism is getting bigger. I didn't think of it to put in uh, this story, uh, this paper when I wrote it, or this story when I uh, created the OneNote, but I used it in a uh, presentation in the diocese just last week. In the second chronicle of Narnia, the children are there for a hundred pages before they even see uh, Aslan, and Lucy is the first to see him because she has the light, Lucy, light. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. Uh, I can repeat this by heart because I do it so many times in class. Aslan, you're bigger. And he replies, that's because you are older. Not because you are? No, said Aslan, but every year you grow older, you will find me bigger. There are your marching orders for spirituality. Get older and find Aslan bigger. Traveler wonders whether anyone can make himself small enough to reach all these diminished peoples inside the crack of hell. And George MacDonald replies to him, only the greatest of all, hmm, capital G, hmm, I bet he's up to something. Only the greatest of all can make himself small enough to enter hell. For the higher a thing is, the lower it can descend. And only one has descended into hell. Will he do it again? Well, it wasn't long ago that he did it. Time doesn't work that way when you've once left the earth. All the moments that have been or shall be or are present in the moment of his descending, and there's no spirit in prison to whom he did not preach. A thing can be bigger inside than outside, and so a moment of time can hold eternity. The moment of time, the chronos unit, can hold eternity, something of eternal consequence, the kairos. The kairos is bigger than the chronos in which it is contained. We discover the kingdom by going further in, to find a pathway further up. Going further in is what all the spiritual writers say. Descend into your heart. I'll pick Isaac the Syrian. The latter is within you, hidden in your soul. Plunge deeply within yourself, away from sin, and there you will find steps by which you will be able to ascend. Augustine exclaimed, Look, you were within me, and I was outside. You were with me, but I was not with you. And Gregory of Nyssa asks, Do you realize how much your Creator has honored you above all creatures? All the heavens fit into the palm of God's hand. And though he is so great that he can grasp all creation in his palm, you can wholly embrace him. He dwells within you. Nor is he cramped 
as he pervades your entire being. I would have never thought of it. God dwelling in your soul. Oh, I'm kind of crowded. I'm squeezing. He's not cramped. It's a human mystery to celebrate the eternal in time, and our soul is a receptacle that can be capacitated to contain the eternal one. One single of our spiritual moments is bigger than all the time that is washed over the inanimate matter in it. If you don't have that doctrine of man straight, a faulty anthropology will yield a faulty ecology, faulty cosmology, faulty picture of uh, uh, the human being's place in the world. But that's another side story. Just before the traveler in the great divorce awakens at the end of the book, he sees a relationship between the eternal soul and the temporal person depicted as a gigantic motionless forms looking on little figures like chessmen. And he knew that each chessman or was the idol or puppet representative of some of the great presences that stood by. The acts and motion of each chessmen were a portrait or a mimicry or a pantomime which delineated the inmost nature of his giant master. There's a soul which is eternal and the soul embodied is moving temporally in time uh, in, um, the in the body. The chessmen are men and women as they appear to themselves and to one another in this world, and the silver table is the time. Well, our journey through time, he's saying, is actually not a movement from South Bend to Chicago, a movement from uh, New York to Paris. It's a movement of our soul. Our journey through time is not locomotion. It's spiritual motion. It's a movement of our soul. And it can be going in one of two directions, either toward God or away from him. It can move in a tendency toward complete union with God. To move the opposite way is mortal sin. We possess a consciousness of this tendency, but it's confusing. It's hard. We're unclear about what it is we desire. We're in an amnesiac state since we were kicked out of the garden. We call it beauty as if that settled the matter. But Lewis insists that the beauty is not in the temporal things on the chessboard. Those are just glimpses of a beauty. And so uh, a series of quotes here. One of my favorite Chesterton quotes. I haven't uh, cited him yet this week to somebody, so he's in this presentation. Man cannot love mortal things. He can only love immortal things for an instant. Man cannot love mortal things. He can only love immortal things for the instant that they exist in time. Each mortal truth, beauty, or goodness is a fleeting instant of an immortal truth, beauty, or goodness. <gasps> it's all in Plato, all in Plato, exclaims Lord Diggory in the last battle. Bless me, what do they teach them at these schools? Finite, beautiful things are only an image of what we truly desire. But that might be enough. That might do the trick. This is why asceticism doesn't cover over creation in darkness. Asceticism makes it brighter than it's ever been before. There's a glimpse because the thing that we see is not the thing itself. Things in the world, beauty, truth, goodness, are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. While you're loving this mortal thing, it's actually the immortal thing that has got its hooks in you. And so the uh, quote that I'm heading towards, do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? Yeah, okay, perhaps I am. I picked this uh, picture of Lewis off the web choices on purpose. Doesn't that look like that's just what he's saying? Yeah, maybe I am trying to weave a spell. But remember your fairy tales? Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. 
And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to awake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness, which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. Uh, what do you mean by worldliness, Clive Staples? I mean this, almost our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice, and all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. That's what worldliness means. There's nothing wrong with the world unless you thought that your good can be found in it. It's a servant. It's full of creatures who are servants to Almighty God. Worldliness is taking the world without reference to God. Worldliness is sitting down on the path rather than uh, following the world to its end, which is its creator. Asceticism is the cost of breaking the enchantment. An enchantment of time and uh, matter both. An enchantment of the immediate. The French poet Paul Claudel said, It seems as if the acorn knows its destiny and carries within itself an active idea of the oak required of it. In the same way, it seems as if memory and foresight join together in the hearts of Adam's son to deny the immediate the right to prevail. We live in the immediate. We serve people in the immediate. This is a place for our active ministry. This is a place for charity. But it does not prevail. Screwtape advises Wormwood to exploit ambiguity to this advantage. Humans, he says, are amphibians, half spirit, half animal. And as spirits, they belong to the eternal world. As animals, they inhabit time. And this gives us demons our um, entrance point. This means that while their spirit can be directed toward an eternal object, their bodies, passions, imaginations are in constant change. For to be in time means to change. See that changing going on? Their nearest approach to constancy is undulation, a repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back, a series of troughs and peaks. I think you've had your um, troughs with God, and you've had your peaks with God. The devils can't understand why the enemy permits this, even less why the enemy relies on the troughs, sometimes even more than the peaks. They can only speculate. I found this in a uh, book uh, concerning screw tape, and I'm not sure what this means, as imagined by the author C.S. Lewis. Did Lewis draw this picture of screw tape, or um, did he describe it and somebody drew it? I don't know which is which, but uh, I like the. Um, <laughs> of all the screw tape pictures, he said uh, his idea of hell was endless bureaucracy. <laughs> so that's uh, how screw tape works his way out. Well, let me get back on track. They can only speculate. The demons and uh, screw tape and wormwood and Satan can't understand what God is up to. If only he would tell us. They can only speculate that all this talk about his love for men. His service being perfect freedom is not mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. I mean, I can hardly bring myself to say it, Screwtape exclaims. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Hello, Imago Dei. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own deification, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can become food. He wants servants who can become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. This is how the demonic is the exact opposite of um, God. My mind wanders even while I'm speaking sometimes. You know the root of the word symbol? Baleo means to throw. 
and sim means together. Take this object and this object and symbolize them. Throw them together. Take something of matter and something of eternity and throw them together and you have a symbol. There's an opposite of symboleo. That would be to throw not together but apart. Diaboleo. El Diablo. Diabolical. He wants servants. He wants sons. He wants to give out. He's full. He flows over. The diabolical is the very opposite of that. Close this up. We're coming up on an hour. When God says he loves us so much that he could just eat us up, he means something Screwtape can't understand and the Jill Pole need not have feared. When our hunger for God meets God's hunger for us, there's the synergy. Then our being becomes complete. In heaven, the traveler of the great divorce sees completed people. One gets glimpses, even in our country, of that which is ageless. Heavy thought in the face of an infant, frolic childhood in that of an old man. Well, here it was all like that. This is the face of a saint who has mastered time. The saint practices iconography on himself. The icon in the words of Gennadius Lemuris is the Christ, the God who became a face. What's unique about Christianity among all the other religions? God became a face. It's a nice way of uh, naming the incarnation. Additionally, the icon is the face of all the friends of God who are our friends too and wish to include us in the circle of saints. Graphe means to write. Graphite in your pencil. Biography is to write about a bios, a life, to write the life of a person. Autobiography, an autobiography is to write one's own life. A hagiography, a hagia autobiography is written by the spirit. The spirit is the iconographer, the icon writer. The Holy Spirit wants to write you as an image of Jesus. The kingdom of God is anticipated either from the beauty of the world, but that's an ambiguous beauty, that's a problem. I mean, we do have sunsets, but we also have hurricanes. Or it could start from certain faces. The kingdom of God could be anticipated from certain faces, certain old faces, fashioned by a long life, Faces which have not been plunged into resentment or bitterness or the fear of death. Faces of those who do not flinch as they approach death. Faces that know precisely where they are. And have found again the mind of a child. The ascetic has patience, which Evdokimov considers a form of interiorized monasticism. Patience is the opposite of despondency. Despondency uh, happens as a desire, result of a desire for instant gratification. Uh, ready, God, I'm going to do Lent, and oh boy, I'm not getting anywhere. Become despondent. Oh, you must be patient. And the ascetic trusts time because he does not live in merely ordinary time where death has the last word and where time erodes. He lives in a time mingled with eternity, time as it is offered to us by the resurrection. This is a closing quote from C.S. Lewis. It's one of my favorites and I uh, have been, you see above looking for uh, pictures to go with him. Uh, he's describing a saint who's been making some progress and I thought, who should I use? Uh, Augustine, Cyril, Basil? I know, I know. 
Let's use Lewis and his wife, Joy. Every now and again, one meets them. Their voices and faces are different from ours. Stronger, quieter, happier, more radiant. Now, this is a dense paragraph in um, Mere Christianity. And how should I do justice to the density? I know I'll read it slowly. <laughs> kind of a cheap trick, isn't it? But uh, he's, he, uh, I keep coming back to this and thinking about it myself. They begin where most of us leave off. Then he says, you'll have to know what to look for because they will not be like your general idea of religious people. And that's why I chose the picture that I did. They don't draw attention to themselves. That one makes sense to me. I can wrap my mind around that. I'm still working on beginning where most of us leave off. This is an interesting one. You tend to think you are being kind to them when they are really being kind to you. Will I meet any saints this week? Hmm, maybe I should pay attention to some occasion where I think I'm being very generous to somebody and discover, in fact, that they're really being kind to me. They love you more than the other men do, but they need you less. It's not a needy, graspy, egocentric love. They will usually seem to have a lot of time, and you will wonder where it comes from. That always makes me think of my father, I didn't realize it until later, but when I was a kid, any time we asked, uh, could we go down to the tennis courts and hit the ball around, he would, his answer would be, sure. And then I realized some years later, after I started doing it myself, that he had a pile of papers to grade. And he could have said, just let me finish this. I, I just want to finish this. I've got my project, and when I finish this, then we can go do what you want. Instead, he would say, sure, and he would just stop. Like that uh, monk who was called out by his abbot and he was just starting to trace the letter O and when he heard the abbot call him, he didn't so much as finish the letter. He left the O unfinished. There, my father. He always seemed to have a lot of time. If your passions are not egocentric, centered on your ego, then you seem to have a lot of time and you'll wonder where it comes from. In this way, I better end in red ink, don't you think? In this way, to become holy is really like joining a kind of like a secret society, and it is very lowest. This is the least you could say about it, but it is very lowest. You could say, it really must be great fun. I thank you again for the uh, opportunity uh, to let me go through this again. Uh, I suppose I could do it for my wife over dinner, but, you know, she gets tired of it uh, day after day after day. I suppose I could uh, try to grab people on the street corner and say, uh, have you ever considered the themes of asceticism in C.S. Lewis? But, uh, I might have trouble doing that. Uh, so I'm really uh, grateful for this. Wish you well. Pray for me, a sinner. <laughs>